Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Carl Linkford. He is joined by Fabio Vigiani, CTO at TrueSec Group. Fabio discusses becoming the CTO of a large cybersecurity company, finding the right people and tools for the job, and how to predict a hacker's next move. Follow the human side of cybersecurity with the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Amazing. So, Fabio, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really excited to have you on the podcast and hear a lot about your journey and stories. Thought we'd kick off straight away for our listeners, and I, I love to hear how you think one of your friends would introduce you at the pub if they were describing who you are and what you do. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Carl. I'm uh, excited to be here. Uh, so I think uh, it depends if that person like works in in, uh, in cybersecurity or not. <laughs> Many of my friends don't. So, I mean, if you would ask them, they'd probably say, you know, he, he's that hacker guy. Because, uh, you know, that's what kind of sticks <laughs> with people that, you know, even though that's not really what I do anymore, I've been doing, you know, uh, the offensive security side of things for, for a while. Uh, it's not really my primary focus anymore, but still, you know, it's the hacker. Because, uh, you know, that's that's what people easily remember, right? You're, you're, you're the man in the matrix with all the green characters on your yeah, screen yeah, 24 right, hours right, a day. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. amazing. Well, you, you said it's something you used to do, but you don't do so much now. When you when you first kind of got into the industry, into cybersecurity, how, how did that happen for you? Yeah, so uh, that was about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, I was basically, I mean... Already when I was like a, a kid, where I was maybe 12, 13, around there, you know, I, I, I remember reading these, uh, I, I found these things online where, uh, you know, they describe how to do hacking, right? Whatever that meant back then <laughs> or in those types of, uh, of contexts, because it was basically, you know, explaining like, uh, you know, you can log on to these uh, uh, open SMTP server and spoof the sender address. And for me, it was like, wow, I can become anyone. And, uh, you know, I kind of had that little <laughs> thing. Uh, I didn't really follow through like in my teenagers, teenager years. But, uh, you know, then I started studying, went to, to like IT engineering. And then I did the master's in IT, uh, like security-ish. I mean, there was some security stuff, not really too focused on security, though. Um, and then, you know, my favorite courses were when they they were talking about pen testing and try to do some hacking. And, you know, I, I knew a little bit of web development. So, you know, things like SQL injection, those simple initial things. And then I got into um, into uh, into a company, which was actually TrueSec, which is still the company where I work at. So I, st- I started doing my master thesis at TrueSec about 10 years ago. Um, and that's how I got into the industry. And then, you know, I had an a- academic background. So... Uh, you study a lot of the theory, you try some things yourself, but then you come, you know, to the real world and you see how things actually work and then you start <laughs> learning. And then I had my journey uh, at TrueSec, started from penetration testing, red teaming and all that type of stuff. And uh, then I've done a few years into incident response, uh, threat intelligence. I was a technical lead for different teams uh, at TrueSec. And uh, nowadays I'm, uh, I'm CTO at TrueSec. Things are a bit different than oh, wow. when I started uh, 10 years ago. We were maybe 20, 30 people. Now we're almost 300. So things look a little bit different. <laughs> that's a, that's huge growth. Gosh, incredible. And congratulations for that as well. I know that's uh, very recent that's happened. Um, I'm going to wind back slightly when you first joined TrueSet. You said there you had quite an academic background and 
it sounded like the kind of actual real world pen testing was quite new to you. Yeah. Um, just from my kind of research earlier, I, I believe you tried to start automating some of that when you first joined. Do you want to yeah, yeah. just explain a little bit about what you did there? <laughs> sure. No, I mean, that was, that was actually my, my master thesis project. So, you know, because okay. I wanted to get into, into this industry, right? So uh, I started talking to different companies. I, I came to Sweden like around that time. Um, so then I, I wanted, you know, I, I was looking for companies in, in Stockholm where I was located and I still am uh, that would take in students doing their master thesis projects. And, and then I was just asking, you know, what would be something that could work for you? Like that would be interesting for you hmm. and it would still you know, satisfy the requirements for the university to actually get a, a like a valid project. Um, and then, you know, I found TrueSec and, uh, uh, you know, they were working a lot of, with penetration testing. And uh, so then we were discussing, okay, like it would be nice to try and, you know, remove some of the amount of work that we do. And for me, that was a great opportunity to actually start learning how real penetration testing was done. So for me, it was primarily a learning experience. Uh, but then, you know, I set it up as a project. So, you know, analyzing, okay, what are, you know, what are these people actually doing when they go and test their clients and uh, what to look for and how many of those things are always repeated, always the same. And we can kind of, you know, either script or put it in some kind of, you know, just see what, what we can automate out of the process, which again, for me, was primarily mm -hmm. a learning experience. Uh, so, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't really end, ended up like using whatever I built. It was more of a concept to see like, you know, compare different tooling and see how we can reproduce the, the outcome and, and things like that. So kind of like scientific approach with then in practice is not maybe that usable. Uh, but there were some good learnings that we, you know, we implemented into more mature tools later on uh, in, in my, my times as pen tester. So uh, I was good on it all. I was I was thinking that must be really difficult to try and automate a lot of the work because every environment that you approach would be slightly different. So there's so many different variables that you'd have to bring in. Like, gosh, that that must have been quite a thesis and quite a huge project. <laughs> yeah, the thing also, I mean, as a like an uh, inexperienced you know student coming out of university and say, yeah, let's just automate the whole process. You know, very optimistic that that was going to be so easy, right? <laughs> like, yeah, sure. Why? Why is? Why hasn't anyone done it before? Well, because it's actually kind of hard. <laughs> but again, you know, I learned a lot in the process. But uh, uh, that primarily taught me like the the difference between tooling and people, right? And how much is actually important that you know you have real people really understanding the client's environment or whatever is the scope of what you're testing and actually trying to identify what the real problems are. That being said, tools are important. I mean, if we didn't have tools, we would spend a lot of, waste a lot of time actually doing things that tools can find. So as long as we understand what the tools can do and use them for that, that's fine. But I wouldn't just call like an automated scan a penetration test. Uh, so there are learnings. And I think in the end, it's about finding the right combination of tooling and people, right? Yeah, amazing. And I guess to to put yourself in in your kind of CTO role and think of your younger self approaching you, you know, what what's something that you're interested in or a problem that you're interested in solving that I guess other people aren't so interested in that would be a, would make a good thesis for somebody else. So as as part of my role as CTO, I'm uh, I'm focusing on making sure that the different technologies and ways that 
uh, that we deliver our, our services across the different things we do can actually work together to provide more value. And I'm going to put that as an example because we do, um, you know, we do penetration testing and red teaming and all that side of things. We do incident response, we do threat intelligence, we do monitoring the SOC. And it becomes very, very interesting when you start putting all those pieces together and try to get the like holistic perspective. So like, how do you apply threat intelligence to decide what type of vulnerabilities are more important to check than others? Uh, or how do you learn from an instant response case? You take those learnings and you, you, um, you enrich that with some studies. So that's like the threat intelligence side of things. And you push it back to maybe uh, monitoring uh, or, you know, are, are, are monitoring the SOC to, you know, maybe build new rules based on an ongoing attack that we see from an incident response mission we're doing. So putting those pieces together becomes really, really interesting. And it's something we're doing on our side. But I think if I were starting and looking into this, uh, this industry, uh, it's really interesting to see how you put these pieces together. And it doesn't need to be overcomplicated, like hundreds of systems and integrations and stuff, which you know uh, you might think that that's what this involves. But uh, it's really just making decisions that are based on on learnings from other areas, because it's it's easy to start working in silos. Like, yeah, I do pen testing, I do just that, uh, and I have my my own you know way of defining what's important, and or I do like my instant response, I solve the case and move on to the next, uh, or I do monitoring. This is my set of rules. You know, just having an extra layer on top of it uh, becomes very, very important. And I think in the future, it's going to become even more important because we need to have a better, uh, we need to have a more efficient, efficient approach to cybersecurity. So if I were to, to starting in, were to be starting this field now, I would definitely look into that. Amazing. Thank you. And I guess when we're talking about efficiencies and we're thinking about growth in the industry, do you, uh, do you see artificial intelligence, machine learning, playing a part in that efficiency for, for you as a defender? Yes, but it all depends on what we mean by that, right? I mean, it's a lot of buzzwords around that, right? So, I mean, what is AI? What is, you know, is it a lot of logic applied to a bunch of scripts or, or is it more than that? And I mean, we could argue. <laughs> I think it depends on the system and it depends who you talk to. Uh, I mean, ultimately, yes, I think it, it definitely will have a role. It has a role, uh, but it kind of goes back to that trade-off between automation and, and, and human uh, on top of it, right? And just understanding what the limitations are. Now, the, bind, the boundary might change over time. I think that's where, you know, maybe more so-called AI would come into place, uh, just shifting that boundary. But I think in the end, there will always be both components in the picture. I like the um, I like the way you spoke of it. Of uh, there's tooling and there's people, and they're very different, and but they need each other in that kind of symbiotic relationship. And I'm thinking about TrueSec and that journey you went on to kind of grow to you said over 300 employees now. What what's been the biggest difference in TrueSec from when you kind of first started to to where you are today? I mean, one one main difference is the switch in the last few years to uh, more of a managed service approach. So things that are more scalable. Uh, we were primarily a consultancy uh, based organization before. Uh, now for, for a big part, we still are, but we're moving more towards managed services, things that can scale better. And that, that obviously makes a difference because it's a different way of working. We can, we can help a lot more companies and organizations. So we have a lot of more customers, so there's more volume. 
Then you also get more data, uh, which you can get insights from and you can feed back into the system. So everything scales a lot differently nowadays uh, compared to when I started, which was uh, a lot more ad hoc type of working. And then uh, I would say, I mean, we also have areas that we work in now that we didn't have at all before. For example, threat intelligence is, is uh, relatively new, uh, at least being formalized as its own uh, unit or department in the last maybe three, four years. Uh, and when I started, we, we didn't have that. We definitely didn't do nearly as much incident response as we do today. Uh, we maybe do a, you know, a few incident cases when I started. Now we have a team of 30 people dedicated just to incident response, uh, plus another plus another like 60, 70 that can be added uh, as they as they need. And I think last year in 2021, we did between somewhere like 160 or 170 incidents just last year, uh, meaning like actual like full investigations of whether it's ransomware or, or uh, uh, you know, espionage operations or things like that. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah, so that volume was not even imaginable with the people, with the amount of people we had ten years ago. Gosh, that, that's just that's just amazing that you've been able to to kind of grow and, and bring along such a such a large group of talented people as well. We start to think about the kind of skills that you require to do each of those roles and attract them into the organization. I think that's uh, just absolutely incredible. And congratulations to to you and the rest of the team for being able to do that. Um, and then kind of thinking a bit a bit more about you as well during that growth, you've obviously recently become the CTO of TrueSec. And again, congratulations for that. H- how did that happen in a way? I guess there's a, there's a lot of people who listen to uh, our podcast who kind of aspire one day to be in that role. So how did you end up getting there and what sort of advice would you give people on the way? I I, I don't think it's a very like uh, common way of getting to this position or maybe it is, I'm not sure. I don't have so much to compare to. Uh, but I think, I mean, because I started, like I said, I started as a student doing my master thesis and I kind of like over the years I went through, through a lot of the different areas uh, and I've done that work myself. So I was a consultant about like red teaming, incident response, threat intelligence, I built internal systems. So I, I had a role in the past few years already of like an internal technical lead. So across different teams, right? So I was working, for example, you know, grabbing the data from uh, or the learnings, the incidents from the incidents we did, make sure that our threat intelligence department had enough information to do their own research, make sure that their output would be fed back into what we monitor in the SOC and then back to help more IR cases. So I already had that role, like from a very, you know, uh, technical and like deep dive perspective into projects. Um, So then as we started growing, uh, there is the clear need of, aligning uh, more of the business strategy or what we are doing at the high level to how we actually do that from a technology perspective, stuff that we build, new services we bring up, how they work together. So so as we were growing, the need for that role kind of, you know, started appearing. And uh, and then, uh, I mean, it was it was natural to, to have me fill in that gap uh, because I already had a lot of the history here. I knew the people, I knew the teams, I've done the work myself. I know what systems we have in place. So it just it was just very natural for me to to take that spot. That's an amazing position to be in. I think having that broad experience across so many different departments and kind of pulling things together, I think you're going to be set up for success in your new role. So 
That sounds really, really interesting. I think a lot of our, our readers and listeners could probably relate to that as well of, you know, being the intersection of all the technical questions, having the visibility across all those different systems. That's yeah, really helpful. Thank you. And if I, I mean, to give an advice, uh, really a, an important component of this is that uh, is to have multiple perspectives uh, on, uh, on different areas of cybersecurity. Uh, offensive security is one thing, or so-called red team, right? Or uh, blue team as well, or purple team, whatever you want to call them together, uh, and doing the monitoring or doing you know, the hardening for your clients or building security infrastructure and all that stuff. So uh, it's quite common that you focus on something, right? You may be a great, great pen tester, uh, but you wouldn't be able to maybe help a customer build a new solution that is secure. Uh, or maybe you just do that part and you wouldn't be able to really find vulnerabilities. Uh, or, you know, you, you focus a lot on, on like doing threat hunting, you use, I don't know, EDR, CMs, whatever you use, uh, but you don't really know how to fully exploit a system or find vulnerabilities or link them together. Uh, so I think what really, really helps me now uh, in my position is that I, I had a little bit of all of those over the years. Uh, so it's very easy for me to relate to a problem that a certain team or even a customer might have, uh, uh, so, uh, which makes this suggested solution a lot more practical. Uh, so like, you know, now from an internal perspective, say that we have an issue in getting, you know, an understanding of what's happening in, in an instant response case, then, well, I mean, it's natural to talk to maybe a red teamer uh, or, you know, someone that is used to uh, to research those type of vulnerabilities that's been used in that case uh, to understand how it really works. And maybe ask that person, okay, if you would have this access uh, and you were using these tools, uh, what do you think was the objective here? Why would they use this tool when they already had this access? So those type of questions, uh, if you already have that perspective, you can answer it yourself. Um, Sometimes, or some, at least you know who to talk to, or what type of, or how to ask the question. Uh, it's you know sometimes just small things, uh, but but it, they help a lot. Uh, they help a lot in projects, like I said, like solving a specific incident response case, for example, from a red team perspective. Uh, but also in my role now, if I if I need to think like, okay, how do we help customers to actually uh, fixing the vulnerabilities that matter? Uh, well, how do you find the vulnerabilities that matter? Well, there's going to be a number of tools you need to use, right? You need to know your assets and you need to have a good coverage. Uh, uh, probably want to do some scanning and like, automated stuff. Then how do you know what's important? I mean, normally you end up with a list of hundreds or thousands of vulnerabilities every year. They come from tools, from pen tests and that kind of stuff. And I was, you know, I used to produce those reports and just deliver it to customer. And I knew there was just a PDF that was going to end up on a pile of other PDFs, which maybe someone is going to look at at the end of the year and decide, we need to fix this 150 before we go to that 200th vulnerability. So we're just going to ignore that now. So how do you make that into something that actually brings more value? Uh, so having the perspective of, okay, but I mean, I know that just all the stuff where we learn from IR, all the stuff where we learn from our research in threat intelligence, we know what the threat actors are using to exploit systems. So focus on that first. I mean, it makes sense. Oh, that that leads me nicely into uh, to one of the things that I think we spoke about in in kind of the research call was 
you've personally and as, a, as an organization dealt with a lot of attacks that have ended up being instigated by kind of very sophisticated nation state level threat actors do you think having that kind of wider visibility helps you attribute them to that level of sophistication or you know, how, how are you able to kind of have that visibility yeah, and course. that understanding uh, so attribution is very hard and especially tooling that today are very advanced make make it even harder because it might be just that the tool is very advanced the actor behind this maybe not that advanced but it becomes quite confusing uh from an investigation perspective to understand you know how much of a sophisticated attack this actually is so uh, uh, so looking at the tools of course is one thing uh but then there can be very small things that actually quite clearly point to a sophisticated actor and it can be uh, it can be uh, I'll give you an example so we were investigating this case uh, earlier this year and um, they were doing some password spraying attack pretty standard you know you try uh, you try a couple of passwords for a long list of users and uh, they got some valid credentials and then they log on to the VPN um, and uh, well, so the account didn't have an MFA set up uh, as it happened. So the, the threat actor set up set one up themselves because <laughs> it was required, but you know, right? So, but it was not actually set up uh, for the first time for that user. So they did set up the second factor themselves, and then they got into the network. And nothing special here, right? But uh, then you look what they did next, and uh, so. Uh, initially, they logged on from an IP address, I think it was in the US, like some VPN provider with an exit point in the US. Uh, and this was a global company, and uh, they were using an account from an office in in, in France, right? Because so they had an office there, and the account was a person working in that office. Uh, so the first connection came from the US. Uh, and then after a while, they checked some things inside, and they disconnected and they reconnected back from an IP address located in France, right? So that's a small thing that, you know, if you didn't really care about being stealthy, you would just keep going with your initial IP, right? You're inside, why would you even bother to disconnect, wait some time and then connect back from a French IP? Uh, well, the user was French, right? So could be a coincidence, uh, but then they did something else too, because they started enumerating all the internal systems and getting all the, all the names of the computers in the different offices. Uh, then they disconnected again, and when they came back from another French IP, uh, when they started authenticating to other internal systems, which is an activity that shows the hostname where you're coming from, they picked a hostname uh, that was exactly the same as one of the existing hosts in the, in the French office. So they were coming from France, and they were using the same name of a French computer while using a French account. So you see all these things, and uh, then it clearly shows that they have a very, uh, you know, high interest in trying to stay under the radar. Um, so, so those type of things can can help you to at least get an idea for the level of sophistication. Then, uh, then tooling as well. Like, do they deploy malware? Do they deploy like just an obfuscated version of Cobalt Strike, which is you know very common, or stuff like that? Or do they have a fully custom built? malware with lots of capabilities and all that stuff, uh, which was also the case there, by the way. They had this uh, uh, weird DLL site loading uh, with very specific things like that type of 
thing was never seen anywhere. Uh, we talked to other companies as well for sharing that type of information and no one has seen that stuff before. So, um, so then, you know, it narrows it down to maybe not that many types of groups that would take it that far. I, th I think when I'm thinking of that, it's sort of uh, the the cost and the effort just keeps increasing for that threat actor. Exactly. And that, yeah, that's really someone who is determined and is quite sophisticated in their approach to to recognize and want to commit to that. Gosh, that's incredible. Then another interesting dimension is looking at uh, at what times of the day they're working. Because uh, normally nation state actors work office hours. Uh, it's part of their daily job, right? So they, they start their activities like maybe eight, nine in the morning until four or five in the afternoon in whatever time zone they are located, right? So, I mean, uh, uh, like, let's see, uh, uh, so UTC time, that's typically the, the time zone we use, right? So like somewhere in Europe, uh, then, uh, you know, if they always start somewhere around 3 a.m. UTC, you know, it's probably someone far east, right? That is starting their work day and they don't work at all in the weekends. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that gives you another little pointer. Uh, so type of malware, uh, times of the day when they work, uh, persistence and sophistication, all these things together, then gradually you increase the confidence in your assessment. Have you have you ever worried after your kind of assessment that, Gosh, we've been we've been on the wrong end here of a sophisticated threat actor. Are, are we ever going to become a target ourselves? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we need, of course, be prepared for that type of activity as well. I mean, we we work against sophisticated actors, so we we take the measure the measures that we need to take to uh, to protect from that and to detect attempts, just like we recommend uh, our customers. We have our own our own way of uh, you know, protecting ourselves. Uh, but yeah, that definitely needs to be something, uh, something that we have to consider. I think it must be really interesting for you as well with all of that kind of, not, not necessarily crowdsource, but all of that visibility into your portfolio of customers and understanding what's happening in their incident responses. Does that make it easier for you to kind of build a defensive posture? Um, I think, I think you've said before that you're able to kind of predict what an attacker's next step might be. How, how has that helped you in your defense? Well, I mean, having the intel on how those actors operate uh, can actually help you predict an attack sometimes. I mean, you can't rely on that, of course, but it, it gives us a little bit of an edge. Uh, and, I mean, it really has to do with defense in depth, where you need to have many layers uh, and you need to assume that some of those layers might fail <laughs> and have something after, right? So, uh, I mean, there is no perfect uh, defense. Uh, you can just have a lot of them. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but when it comes to predicting, I think, I mean, one thing is knowing pretty much how they operate, like where does it make sense to put more detection or protection or things like that. Uh, but then in some cases, it actually becomes like, technically an actual prediction of an attack. Uh, and I'll give you another example. I think this is a fun story. Uh, uh, so this was a case, this was actually another uh, case attributed to a nation state. Uh, and they were, um, I mean, they were combining phishing with other types of attacks, but that's not the point. 
point is the the way that they were setting up their attack infrastructure uh after a while that we were studying them we were uh kicking them out they were trying to come back in so they were setting up new infrastructure uh so we started studying a pattern in how they were setting up their infrastructure so for example they were always using the same uh, uh the same uh, registrar for the domain names they were always having a certain patterns in the in the ports and services that they exposed they would always uh uh, they will always sync all their own domains when they went offline. So you had like, you know, you had malware on, on infected computers try to reach out to a command and control server. So when they went offline, they switched that domain to localhost or 127001. So it wouldn't actually call back until they went back to work, changed the DNS again, they started talking again. So that makes it for a clear pattern, right? So domains that switch between localhost and a new IP address. Uh, same registrar, same set of ports and fingerprints on those. So we started building a whole, uh, you know, a whole detection capability. It's like when they set up new infrastructure, we know it's actually very likely that this is what they're going to use next. And then we can already block it before they have a chance to use it. So that was pretty cool. Uh, and it worked out very well because then you can really see like, yeah, we inform our affected customer that, yeah, they're probably going to come from this uh, new three IP addresses uh, tomorrow. So you should block them today, and then you see the next day they actually try and get blocked before they can even really try the attack. Uh, I mean, you don't always have that possibility, but when you do, it's actually pretty cool to see how it works. I, I like that. And something I saw in the news as well recently was your partnership with Europol. So kind of taking those lessons you're learning and... I, I, really like kudos to to all of you again for joining in with the no more ransom project i think fantastic global initiative um am i right in thinking you've developed some tools yeah yeah no exactly uh, so in the case with europol now we've uh, yeah we published a, a set of decryptors for uh, for a ransomware family uh, so it includes different variations of of similar type of ransomware uh, and you know it's always a question of like what should go public and what what you want to use to protect the victims without letting the the threat actors know that we have a way to bypass their encryption. Uh, so it's always that this you know like, uh, but you know we, we do this in collaboration with you know law enforcement agencies and and other um, other partners. So uh, so this is normally a joint decision of what to what to publish that actually has most more effect of uh, helping affected uh, uh, companies, organizations, or even individual you know private individuals, um, uh, and what makes more sense to actually use to to help affected victims uh, without letting the actors know that we have a way around it. But yeah, this was. Uh, this was a, a good example of using like cryptanalysis to actually break the encryption of the ransomware because it was it was done badly. In other cases, there are some other types of workarounds that you might still get back files without really breaking the the encryption, but uh, using some other uh, tricks. <laughs> well, uh, we'll save those for for not on a public podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I that's probably so. best. Yeah. <laughs> I um I like the thing there as well about uh, you kind of talking through understanding having kind of a the lens of the attacker from the kind of red team exercises as well. And I think one of the things I was most interested to talk to you about was the attack or incident you investigated with a bit of a twist um, where it's, you know, I, I won't spoil that, but uh, I think it was, um, gosh, when you were working for the organization and you 
you figured out something very specific about the attacker and you had to struggle to not not kind of reveal what you had worked out. So can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Yeah, you mean for like the uh, insider story? <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, this actually has happened in multiple occasions that we investigate a case and one or more of the people working at the affected uh, organization uh, you may suspect that they they might be an insider, so they actually had a part in the attack. Um, and sometimes it can be, I mean, first of all, it's very hard to be sure, and we're not there really to to judge that. Uh, but either we might get uh, uh, some indications from from others, maybe you know the the their employer themselves that, uh, or or we have reason to believe based on their activities that we uncovered during the investigation that you know it looks like they maybe wanted to do it or, you know, they were part of it. Uh, and sometimes it can be, you know, you see them try to like delete traces, uh, a little bit sloppy maybe sometimes. And it can be just that they know they've not really done things properly. You know, maybe they felt bad because they clicked on a link or something and they tried to delete that. And that's, you know, that's understandable. Uh, from our perspective, we just need to understand what happened. Uh, we're not there to point fingers in any way. or uh, and, But that's one thing. Another thing is when a person is actually uh, uh, maliciously trying to do something and then cover their traces. Uh, and they it might be for different motives. Uh, it might be because, you know, they're, they're angry at their employer or something. Or maybe they are paid by an external party to give out information or give access. Uh, and this case I mentioned to you earlier about, uh, it's actually a pretty interesting one because it wasn't just one person, it was actually several um, at the same place and they have pretty high access to, to the environment as well, uh, which makes it very hard to, to deal. <laughs> because on one side, you don't wanna tell them that you're suspecting that, uh, you know, they have full access to everything. <laughs> so, you know, it's very easy for them to start making your investigation a lot harder. Uh, and they're also the people that are supposed to give you the data and the access that you need to do your investigation. <laughs> so it becomes quite tricky to handle that situation, right? And, uh, but, you know, we have other types of support uh, that is not just technical. We have crisis management and uh, uh, and people that work more on the human side of, of an incident response. Uh, and that's a typical case where they need to be involved. <laughs> yeah, I think crisis management is a, a light way of putting it when you realize it's as someone obviously with quite a significant amount of access in into all of the technical environments as well who are supplying with you information. What um, what does that feel like when you're you're you are there and you you realise this is kind of unfolding in front of you? What what's going on in your head? One thing that sometimes is not clear if you're just like do you're doing an investigation. Maybe you get like some you know logs or disk or whatever to analyze from a forensic perspective. You do your job and so on. But when you're actually there in front of people and talking to people. Maybe you're there on site, right? You're at their office, and uh, either you suspect that there is an insider, or 
you're just talking to someone who is affected there. The human side of things is actually quite interesting and sometimes a little bit forgotten when we talk about these things. Mm. I mean, <laughs> when it comes for the, for the insider scenario, I mean, uh, luckily for me, I haven't found myself in that many of those situations. Uh, uh, but where I found myself often in is actually talking to a victim that uh, they they they're actually really really worried that they might not have a job the day after or they might not have a company left they might go bank bankrupt because you know uh, maybe all their production is down because their factories are shut down they might lose all the clients they might lose or all their business and it's it's not just technical work really that we need to do there because we need to go there and reassure them, bring that confidence and say, I mean, we've done this hundreds of times. We know what we're doing. It's okay. You take their hand or, you know, you tap their shoulder and, you know, we, we got this, you know, just that part uh, actually helps a lot uh, and helps them to also focus on, on the things we ask them to do. Like we need this, this, and that from you. Uh, we're going to fix all the rest. Don't think too much. This is what we need now. Go get it for us, please. And, and we'll get going. Um, but uh, but then you see how people react in different ways. Um, it's also quite common that there is just one or two, maybe very few people that have all the answers in a company, especially mm. from an IT perspective. <laughs> yeah. You know, that person that's been at the company for 35 years and know everything. Also, the, also all the things that are not documented anywhere, nobody else could find if they don't ask that person. So that becomes very much a single point of failure. And you really don't want that person to, you know, just shut off and, uh, you know, just have some kind of crisis and not be able to work anymore. So you really need to take care of the people. So that's a lot of stuff that goes through, through our mind too when we handle incidents and we have people in front of us. Like, you know, let's make sure that people are fine uh, because without those people, we, we can't really do anything. That's such a like a huge weight of responsibility on your shoulders. Do you, do you ever kind of struggle with compartmentalizing that to the job? Obviously, you kind of do your incident response, you get things back to a reasonably good position, and then in want of a better term, you kind of have to walk away ready for the next incident response. Like How, how do you cope with that kind of switch off and into the next one? Mm. Well, that's, I mean, that's why we have many different roles, right? Normally, uh, Incident managers handle that, uh, handle the case also a little bit after we, we, we close the technical part to make sure everything is up and running. Um, so normally they have the, the, the broader perspective, um, one case end to end. Uh, from a technical perspective, yeah, you, you, you jump a lot between cases, but normally you stick with one until the technical part is done because just the, the switching is, is a lot of overhead uh, and time that gets wasted just understanding and, you know, uh, context switching and, and all that stuff. Uh, but then, I mean, it, it becomes, it just becomes part of your daily job. Uh, so after a while, you, you don't react as much. And we have dedicated people that handle all the more like sensitive and human aspects. And also, they, that's what they do all the time. So for them, it's also not that strange. It's just another day of the job. Mm. I guess uh, in, in your kind of role now, 
like one of the things I would be thinking of is like how do I how do I hire the right people for those conversations and when you're looking to hire somebody who is going to be kind of on that front line as an incident manager and supporting your client through quite a difficult time what sort of skills and attributes would that person have mm. So, uh, I mean, given that I'm not the one hiring those people, but at least I'm pretty sure I know what qualities they need, they need to have. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, structure is very important because you, you can't really be an incident manager without having a structure uh, because you're going to get questions from all over the place and you need to have a good structure way to answer them uh, and give, uh, you know, estimations. You're going to have your clients asking, you know, when can we get back that system and when can we do this, this and that and be able to give like concrete answers and, and handle the pressure. There's going to be pressure for different angles. Um, uh, it's good to have some of the technical expertise yourself as well, at least on a level that, you know, you're not lost when, uh, when, you know, there is a discussion about, you know, what solution to use or what's better. So, I mean, all of our incident managers also have a technical background, uh, at least to an extent that you can handle that discussion because uh, the customer is going to ask you, you know, uh, why shouldn't we go with this uh, type of solution or why can't we start internet connectivity from our office in Japan now? Uh, so they, they can't all the time ask uh, the, the technical team and then get back. I mean, they need to have those conversations directly. So, so technical expertise is also important. Uh, then I think, you know, just not just for the incident manager, but working in an incident in general is quite quite demanding task. Uh, also from a personal, uh, you know, from a private life perspective, you might be working at very strange times. Uh, you might want to make sure that your family is okay with that. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> working shifts normally, so I mean, you know, you do get your sleep and all that stuff. But you might get your sleep in the day. You have to work in the night, uh, depending on the case. So, um, yeah. So it's a combination of those skills, and uh, and of course the the people part uh, as well, right? You you need to have those types of communications to keep the keep the client calm, uh, make sure you are explaining the situation well and clear, because if you leave some unclarities, it just makes them more stressed uh, and concerned, naturally. Um, so, so that quality is quite important as well, clear communication and be a calm person and handle pressure. Sounds like some, some really critical kind of life skills there that are rarely taught. Um, that, yeah, no, I really appreciate you kind of sharing those. And I'm just thinking kind of last, last sort of question on the, the human side, really. What are some great resources that could help people to kind of understand the, the kind of components of your organization and the different roles in there? So if, uh, if I was a young 18-year-old you know, Carl and I'm thinking of starting a career, where, where would you point people to learn? Good question. So I, I going back a little bit to what I said before about having the perspective of both you know offensive, defensive, and uh, uh, I mean nowadays there are a lot of resources that help with many of these things. There is a lot of you know like CTFs, pen testing courses, and all that stuff. There is so much free material online nowadays. 
that wasn't available maybe 15 years ago. Um, so, I mean, pointed to specific resources, to be honest, I don't know, there is so much. Uh, but it's more of the approach to me that is important. So uh, it's actually something that I, I, I say a lot to, um, uh, to, to people that apply for jobs or, uh, or that uh, ask for, for advice in how to apply for jobs or how to get the, the necessary skills and experience to be able to apply for certain jobs is that, uh, I mean, if you want to do pen testing, for example, if you want to hack stuff, uh, don't just do the hacking part try to build the systems first, then hack them, or make them vulnerable and then hack them. Because that's how you really understand why something is vulnerable in the first place. You wanna hack web applications, do some, some web development, some simple stuff, try to create some, some application yourself, you introduce a vulnerability on purpose, then you exploit it, then you fix it, and then you make sure you can't exploit it anymore. Going through that process um, really helps, uh, I mean, finding also other vulnerabilities and why they are there in the first place. And you can actually talk to your client and give them more realistic recommendations instead of just saying, yeah, you have a, you have the vulnerability there, you got to fix it. Um, you actually know why it's there in the first place. At least for the simple things. I mean, you might not be able to build an entire enterprise infrastructure in your lab if you've never done it before. But start with simple stuff, set up some, you know, bunch of servers, set up an Active Directory and create like a fake office environment, create your users, you know, create your own fake company and just, you know, because that, that's something I, that I missed a lot when I started. You know, when I said I had the academic background, you know, I knew maybe how code looked like, how vulnerable code could look like, how to exploit certain things. But no one ever taught me what an enterprise environment looks like. I had no idea like what Active Directory was. And when I started doing pen testing, everyone was talking about Active Directory. I had no clue what it was. <laughs> So it's like, <laughs> uh, start from there, start building a very simple uh, replica of, of uh, what a small office could look like. Um, build some applications on top and start configure some users and stuff and, and then break it. Then you get both some of the blue side and both some of the red side. Uh, I think that's a great start to, to, to get into the industry. Be a, be a little bit more purple in your approach. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bit of everything. Definitely purple. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. I'm right, coming into my last two questions. Um, the first one, is there something you wish I asked you today? Is there anything else you want to kind of put out into the world with this platform? Uh, I haven't talked much about like red teaming examples. Is there a fun one that's in your mind? There's always fun stories that are usually related to physical intrusions, which is usually the fun part of, of, of red teaming. Red teaming, normally you have a lot of uh, different attack vectors, right? And physical intrusion is probably the most fun to actually execute, but uh, you could argue it's not the most realistic type of attack. Uh, if you were to test something that that is more likely to happen to you, you know, physical intrusion... You could argue it's not, it's, it's maybe less relevant than, uh, you know, doing phishing or exploiting internet facing things, which is what a normal cybercrime would do, for example. They would not start by trying to get into your office physically and expose themselves, right? Uh, also, they probably do it from the other side of the world anyway. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, then when you actually get to do it, it's really fun. I mean, uh, um, 
this one time I remember that uh, it was a lot. It, I remember it well because it was a time where I realized like being confident actually gets you through no matter what. <laughs> uh, and I was not doing that alone because one of the first ones I did and it was this pretty large bank. Um, and uh, uh, we went through the gate. It was me and, and uh, another person with me and he was acting like my, my manager. So we had fake badges for that bank. So the day before we found some, you know, some people posting that online, like, oh, you know, a new employee you know, classic, and then you print it out with the with the uh, badge printer. Then uh, you have it. Of course, it wouldn't work to scan it, but you have it there. You look, you look at you belong. <laughs> uh, so then we went in. I had a computer, and uh, and my colleague was uh, basically just going around taking notes. Um, and um, there was this reception with security guard there at the entrance, and they had computers there. And we knew, like, if we get to those computers, even before we cross the gates. Uh, we would be able to most likely reach the internal network from that computer because they need to, you know, uh, register a meeting or whatever they need to do from those stations. Uh, but if you come straight from the outside, uh, it's quite obvious that, you know, you're going to be questioned, right? So, like, who are you? You're coming from the outside. You want to do something here. So we went in first with, like, jackets and everything, and then we went around the building. There was some bathroom and stuff, and then we got basically changed, got out the jackets. And then after quite some time, we went back from that direction. And now it didn't look like we were coming from the outside anymore. Uh, so my colleague was just, you know, uh, taking notes. And I was pretending to be going around and measuring the network, whatever that meant. <laughs> so I had a little device with me. And we were measuring all the, all the network sockets we found. So we just went around and uh, he talked to the security guards and said, um, so how many printers do you have here? Okay, one and two. Okay, because they only had one on the other side, right? Which we checked before. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, we started talking to them and said, oh yeah, he's just going to measure the network in the meantime. And then I had my box and I went under and, you know, hit this little box in between. Uh, and uh, so then we basically just walked away and then from the car reached the wireless and well, we were in the internal network. But that... And I think it's maybe a pretty standard type of story that you hear from this engagement. From my perspective, that was the time where, because I was so nervous, it was one of the first times I was doing it. Uh, but, you know, the person with me, he was so confident in how I was explaining that, that, you know, it was so clear to me that, you know, if you just act like that and you look right with the badge and everything, this is actually really, really simple to do. Um, so it was, it was a bit of an eye-opener for me. Uh, to do that. And uh, yeah, then you get a bit more familiar with that over the time than uh, I've done some of those myself too. Uh, the, the heart stops beating really fast constantly <laughs> when you're on site. And that's <laughs> right, that's right. Don't have to worry so much. Yeah, and you need to have um, a paper that says, you know, uh, that if you get caught, you need to have a paper that says, I'm authorized to do it. Question is, are they going to trust that? <laughs> are they actually going to call someone to check that? or? Are they just going to call the police? That's a lot going through your head in those moments. And then with the job on top, like not just uh, not just thinking about your survival in the environment, but actually you've got work to do once you do survive. Gosh, in incredible. Um, <clears throat> well, I've got my last question, which is a question left from another guest. Uh, so we kind of leave a question from each guest ready for the next guest. Uh, and this question is, who first believed in you and what would you say to them now? Okay, who first believed in me? Um, 
he's actually the founder of TrueSec, Marcus Murray. Uh, and he's, you know, he's been with me through my whole journey. He was, he was actually the one answering that email I sent out as a student looking for a master thesis to do. He was one of the very few answering those emails. And then we got in touch. And uh, he also, I mean, we were a very different organization back then. So it was a little bit strange to have me just, you know, with no prior uh, professional experience coming straight from university. Uh, I was also the only one not speaking the local language here because, you know, I moved to Sweden like a year before. I didn't speak the language. Uh, but he believed in me and, you know, it gave me the opportunity to to start here. And then I, I grew and, uh, you know, he's also the person who now, you know, uh, uh, suggested me as CTO for the role I got recently. So, uh, uh well, what I would tell him now, I mean, we still work together a lot. Uh, so I talk to him every day. <laughs> I tell him things every day. I'm just very grateful for the opportunity. And uh, I'm also very happy that that opportunity for me actually turns out in a lot of other opportunities as well, because we then started hiring other people that had a profile that wasn't really the standard profile that everyone would ex was expecting someone new to have when they started here, because I kind of broke that uh, that profile myself. Uh, so that opened up new doors, which we are really uh, leveraging now, and that's how we grew so much. So I'm just grateful to have had the opportunity myself and be able to transfer that to others today. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. And uh, that kind of brings us towards the end of our time, unfortunately. I think we could probably do multiple episodes together with a few more of those stories as well. It's been absolutely incredible to have you as part of this and, and just thank you so much fabio for for sharing some of your life with all of the listeners of the podcast i really appreciate you and, and say thanks for coming on board it's been a great pleasure thanks for listening to the adventures of alice and bob podcast don't forget to rate review and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it